The Second Act podcast is brought to you by Chin Whiskers Beard and Hair Care. Chin Whiskers is an affordable, Canadian-made, 100% natural men's grooming line. It's available at your local Tommy Guns Original Barbershop, Amazon, or at chinwhiskers.ca. Welcome to the Second Act Podcast. On this episode of the Second Act Podcast, I truly utilize the power of the internet to secure a guest with an unbelievably cool story. About a year ago, while in quarantine with my kids, we started to explore TikTok. I know, a responsible father just tells his kids that they can't be on TikTok, but I said, hey, let's see what this whole thing's all about. In between the dancing, the lip syncing, and the general tomfoolery that is so pervasive on that app, I found a guy who was doing 60 second sound bites on what goes on behind the curtains in corporate HR. And I'm talking about mid-90s, early 2000s, Silicon Valley HR. Big money, big talent, big ego HR. His name is Steve Cadigan, and his posts were far and away the most interesting thing on the entire app. As I followed him and researched him more, I discovered that he was actually the first VP of talent for LinkedIn when that fledgling company took off. Maybe you've heard of it? He has a new podcast out called The Work Week After Hours, with his co-host Shane Howard. He has a book called Workquake, scheduled for release in August 2021, and many other projects ongoing to complement a full speaking and workshop schedule. You can find him at www.stevecadigan.com or on YouTube and TikTok if you go there and search him up. Steve was gracious enough to sit down and give us so many insights on what it takes to succeed, to understand if you are happy, and how to redeploy in a different manner to find the fulfillment you seek. He talks about not knowing exactly what he wanted to do at 22, getting into the workforce, how he navigated a number of curveballs to scale the ladder to the apex of his field. His ability to relay the feelings he had each step of the way broke down the barriers that I could see hindering someone from taking those steps. It really is a beginner's version and a masterclass of taking the bull by the horns to seek those opportunities out and pursue them. I really can't say anything about Steve that he doesn't say much better. So with that, I will let him. Steve Cadigan. Good morning, Steve. Thanks very much for uh, joining us today on the Second Act podcast. How uh, how are things finding you down in the Silicon Valley? Well, I, I went for a walk without a mask this week, so it was a good week. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. That's uh, for us um, in, in Canada, the epicenter of the COVID was San Jose because that's where the Sharks were the first people that said, no, we're not letting anybody into the rink. Uh, and that's kind of when it all became real for us. So it's interesting to see, you know, 16 months later, whatever it is, how far everybody's come. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And it is good that we feel collectively, it seems like as a society, we're making progress, but we still have, you know, a foggy sense of what's next and less certainty around the future than we're used to. And that's that's kind of a weird reality to be adjusting to, you know. Yeah, no, I I understand exactly what you say. We have pockets of our country that are doing better than others and are in various states states of reopening. And and sometimes it's hard to look not very far away and see people that are doing better and getting more more and more. And and then we're you know where I am here in in Alberta, we're we're not quite there yet. My kids are back in school though after a three week break, which is nice to have them back. Uh, I've got a thirteen year old and an eleven year old, so they need that social interaction. That's uh, that's good for them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I can, I can resonate. I'm on the board of two companies. One's in Vancouver, uh, and one's in Victoria. Uh, two companies in Canada, and I really missing. I'm an extrovert too, and I really miss the high fives and the in person stuff and getting a real feel. And um, we've all had to learn new ways, but uh, I'm still. I want to go visit, but I don't think we're welcome across the border yet. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think for, for now we still got to keep it. Uh... Right. So, uh, right. super interesting story, Steve. Um, I followed you on TikTok was how I found you uh, when I was in the kind of formative time on the app. And in between ridiculousness, I found this this guy who was like shooting us straight about what happens in corporate HR and started mm-hmm. following you. Um, you know, really kind of interested, went to my uh, following page every day hoping for for something from Steve Cadigan. And, and then I started on this podcast journey and I threw a dart at you on LinkedIn and lo and behold, um, you, you answered me back. And I've, I've gone through this a bunch of times, kind of all the interesting things you could share with my audience. 
Um, but but I think I'd, I'd just like to kind of turn it over to you so you could kind of introduce yourself to people who maybe aren't on TikTok and and have never been able to sit through one of your uh, 60 second tutorials on how <laughs> corporate HR works. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, to, to, to share a little bit of my story, um, like you, I'm sort of in a, in a chapter right now where I'm trying to figure out how can I give back and how can I help people untangle what seems to be an increasingly crazy future of work. And I started the TikTok journey last year just because I have a book coming out and actually uh, lit up on Amazon recently, and it's going to ship uh, in August 2021. Um, so some students approached me and said, hey, you should get on TikTok. And I'm like, what? You know, I don't want to sell my book to a bunch of teenage lip sync dancers. You know, I don't think that's yeah. my audience. You know, I'm a crusty old guy. And like, no, no, we could repurpose some of you. We've seen you, some of your videos. We can repurpose it. And I said, okay. And then I started to see them repurposing my videos. And like, I think I could do better uh, in person. And that was just really uncomfortable. Like you, I have, I have uh, teenagers, a bunch of them. And they're like, dad, you're a loser. You got like 60 followers on YouTube. You're never going to figure this out. I'm like, okay, well maybe. So let's give it a shot. So I started with the goal of trying to demystify the future work, try to give people a little hope. You know, I've been on the other side of the table, negotiating, hiring, so forth for 30 years. And it can be really messy and weird. And I feel like I understand the back alleys of the world of recruiting more than most people. Right. Um, so, you know, I'm in a phase where I want to give back and I want to help people, especially during the pandemic where people are feeling it. You know, I have family members been laid off and out, out of work six months. And so um, just trying to help portray some things people may not realize and, you know, look at the world right now. Like if you don't have a job, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. So don't get up every day thinking it's going to work its way out today. It's going to take a little time and that's okay, but here's what you can do and here's how you can frame it. Um, but I don't know how far back you want me to go, whether you want me to start to, I was born, uh, you know, in Missouri in the United States and grew up in South Africa for about five years. My parents were rebels, so they wanted a an exciting adventure. So they took us to South Africa. My younger brother and sister were born there. So we like to joke with people that they're African Americans and just kind of freaks people out. Like what? Like, yeah, they're born in Africa and they're Americans. So we, I, I grew up there for five years. Um, the, the, uh, apartheid government kicked out, uh, my dad and our family in 1970. So I was probably about seven at the time and we settled in the East coast of the U S. Uh, so that's pretty much where I grew up in a small, um, suburban town in Connecticut, um, graduated college, went to high school and college there, uh, had not a clue what I wanted to do with my life at all. Finished school, studied history because it was the most fun subject for me. It's yeah. one that I enjoyed doing. I also had a phobia of tests. So every class I signed up for didn't have a final exam and had a paper. <laughs> so right. yeah. at the end of every semester, I'm like cranking out these papers and, and, you know, this is like hunt and peck typing, Back in the day, before you know, graduate before PCs, actually there was just PCs hitting campus my senior year of college in '86. Finished up with history, played a lot of sports in college. Uh, I was on, I was a walk-on basketball player my freshman year. Uh, same for baseball, and then I switched to tennis my sophomore year and played tennis for three years in college, which was really fun. Nothing fancy. It was like Division three, but college is uh, really a fun time, and I had a great experience, great friends. But I graduated, and I was like, now what do I do? I literally never thought, maybe this is, I should blame my parents for, you know, they're more social activists than they were corporate people. And they still probably look at me like, where did we go wrong with him? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so um, so I finished and I had one on-campus interview and that was a company in San Francisco. And I was I had a girlfriend from San Francisco, so graduated. And that company said, when you come to San Francisco, come and we'll talk to you some more. Maybe there's a job. Got in the car. Uh, moved moved in with my girlfriend in San Francisco, did a few interviews, and this company was a fashion company, and I got a job as a collector, calling people saying, yo, it's money. And I was really good at that. You know, I was really good at collecting money because I figured out pretty quickly it wasn't around being firm. It was around building a relationship and then saying, hey, you know, my boss says you kind of owe some money. You know, what can I tell him so that I don't get in trouble and you and I are friends? And I realized it was it was all about relationships um, didn't know what I wanted to do. So I applied to business school. The company found out that I was doing that and said, Hey, you know, we'd hate for you to go. Would you like to come do recruiting? And I'm like 23 years old at the time in San Francisco. It's a fashion company and I'm not, you know, 
I might have been born yesterday, but I wasn't born last night. Like I'm a single guy and I'm going to be interviewing in a fashion company people all day long. Like, okay, this could be, yeah. this could work. So, and I really like the culture there. Great people. The thing about retail that I learned, uh, and I think it's still true today, is people attracted to retail and fashion are generally outgoing extroverts. Like they, And it's a product you can touch and you can feel and you can relate to, which is really – I miss that having been in technology the last you know 20 years of my career. So, uh, so I, I took a flyer and I said I can pay to learn or I can get paid to learn. So I'm going to get paid to learn. I, I decided to stick around, and that changed my life. Like as I, as I, I mentioned earlier, I'm a huge – sports fan. I love playing, but I also love observing how people handle competition. You know, do they perform better when the chips are on the line? Do they perform poorer when the chips are on the line? Do they, are they good on their own? Do they need a coach that's all up in their grill? Do they like being independent? Like what circumstances release the best in somebody? And everything I loved about sports, I could apply that to human resources. I found out pretty quickly. Like if I'm recruiting, one way you could look at it is rudimentary. I'm just going to fill a job. But the other way is much deeper, which is, wow, this boss needs a certain profile and this employee needs a certain environment to thrive and trying to discover that and match it. And then once you bring him in, then you, you're never always right 100% of the time, but you're going to learn new things about the person, about the boss. And so then you try to orchestrate and coordinate and, and ultimately get it right. And so I feel really fortunate, you know, Gord, I was probably 25 when I said, wow, I want to do this the rest of my life. Like, I love this stuff. And so I took another another few jobs and a few other companies and a few other industries to sharpen my sword. Um, and then probably around mid-30s, I said, I want to raise my game. So I went and got a master's degree at the University of San Francisco while I was working. Uh, and if you look at my LinkedIn profile, I think I say under that master's degree that I wrote every paper for that degree in the coach class of United Airlines because I was flying all over at the time for Cisco working on M&A deals all over the world. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my world changed when I got into technology. R super lucky. I hit um, Silicon Valley in the late 90s when it was just booming. You know, this is before the bubble burst in 2001. It was booming. And, you know, the part that that helped me professionally was I my first tech company was AMD and they're a chip company. They're a competitor of Intel's. Within two years of working in that company, and I worked there about four years, half the people I worked with were working somewhere else. So now I knew people at Yahoo, yeah. you know, and Intel and IBM and Oracle and all that, you know, and then the upstart, you know, companies. And pretty soon you're like, whoa, then they're calling me saying, hey, do you want to come over and have lunch? Do you want to check out the company? Would you like to, you know, these referral bonuses? Like, hey, can I refer you for this job? And that has carried me like so well and served me incredibly well. And I feel super lucky. I didn't go to Silicon Valley with the intent of, hey, I'm going to get a great network and everything's going to be gravy. Mm -mm. But that served me well. And AMD as a company was just an outstanding place. I still am super tight and connected with people I work with then. Um, and they've opened many doors. And I, and I hope that I have similarly for them over the years. Um, I moved to Cisco from AMD and I did M&A work. So worked on like 50 acquisitions all over the world. And what I loved about that experience, and, and this is something I, I would like to dive into you with at some point, Gord, and it's, and it's kind of a part of my book, which is I was hired by a woman who'd never gone to college, uh, probably sort of clawed her way through high school, <laughs> yeah. was a former secretary, but had a, you know, what the equivalent of a PhD in human relations, like she got people. And I'm like, she's like, hey, do you want to do this M&A work? And I go, yeah, but I don't know anything about it and I've never done it. And she says, you're going to be great at it. I go, how do you know? Like, I've never done it before. And she says, I've realized that you like to bring uh, order out of chaos. People trust you. You handle change really well and you're a calming influence. And that's what these environments need. And plus, I enjoy the time that we've been interviewing together. I think you're a really good dude. So I'm like, okay. Um, so I went. And literally finished new hire orientation. They gave me a ticket and said, you're going to San Antonio tomorrow. We just bought two companies there. You're going to have to go welcome them. I go, I don't know. what Do what? Like, I don't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't right. even have a computer or nothing. And this was right when laptops were there and like 30 pounds. You know, you're carrying this laptop around. So that that changed my trajectory of my life, being in Silicon Valley. And Cisco at the time was super hot. Like, I don't know, you know, how much you know about that that space, but they were the most valuable company in the world for like two weeks. And then the dot-com bubble burst and we let 8,000 people go and it was just a 
uh, disaster. And, you know, we were a competitor of the, at the time, probably Canada's darling organization, Nortel, Nortel Networks was yeah. our big yeah. competitor. And, you know, <clears throat> that was, they we're worried about them. We're worried about Lucent. We won, I think we won that, that battle for, uh, technology and talent. Uh, so I did that for four years, M&A, and then the dot-com bubble burst, and I wanted to do an international assignment. I just got married, and I was like, man, I would love to go to Europe. And they said, hey, we got this job in Singapore. And I said, hey, you know, Australia, um, you know, the, all those countries sound really great. Let me go check it out. So I moved or went for a two-week trip and just fell in love with Asia. And I thought the future of business was going to be, you know, China. And, man, what a good time for me to get smart about that part of the world. So I show up there a few months later. I took the job. I'm the head of HR for Asia. Never been to Asia before except for a friend's wedding in Hong Kong once. Okay. Like if there was ever a fish out of water, it would have been me. I had no right to be in that role. But once again, just like with my boss at Cisco, my boss said, um, you know, at the time, was, uh, you know, a different boss. She's like, yeah, no, I trust you. You'll figure it out. I was like, really? You're going to? Let me learn. I don't know anything about these companies, these cultures, all the business that we're doing out there. And there's 3,000 people in about 13 countries where we had employees. And you know, I don't speak Mandarin. I still don't speak Mandarin, but they call Singapore Asia for beginners. So it was a it was a good starting point. And um, settled in there, had a good two-year run. The company's like, hey, you got to come back after two years. I'm like, nope, don't want to come back to California. Uh, my son was born in Singapore. I keep telling him, hey, you keep growing. You could be on the Singapore Olympic team because he's, he's a really go. good uh, basketball player. So I took an opportunity in Vancouver, British Columbia, and uh, through a friend of a friend said, hey, there's a job there. You want to check it out? And I'd, already, I'd always fell in love with that area because I'd been snowboarding at Whistler. Oh, okay. Uh, and Panorama a few times, not too far from from your neck of the woods. No, that's um, we get to Panorama a couple times a year usually. Just the best snow ever. And it's far enough from the coast that you get a little more pow pow than than the ice yeah. you know when i hear a snowboard on the west coast like <sighs> you know it's all ice stuff so i took an interview and a job and a job offer without ever really spending any time in vancouver but i just kind of knew the lifestyle was going to suit me and that turned out to be to this day like my favorite job by a country mile the canadian Western Canadian culture suited me, fell in love with the Canucks. Sorry, uh, those fans on, on, the, on the call who may be flame fans. But that was during the Sedine twins uh, right. reign. And, and Ryan Kessler, you know, who's American, was one of my, one of my uh, big uh, players that I like to follow. And we wound up – here's a little one if there's any hockey fans on. We wound up buying a house from Todd Bertuzzi. If you can believe that. Oh, wow. That's uh, interesting. <laughs> Who was on a year suspension when yeah. we bought it and was potentially going to get sued for every nickel from the dude on the avalanche that he, you know, cracked the skull of. Yeah. Um, and the house was in his wife's name, which was interesting in and of itself, you know, that he was, you know, putting all the assets over there in case. Um, so anyway, just a small little side note. Um, love my time there. The CEO who I became very close to, uh, retired after about four years. And then I said, I think it's time for me to do something different. Took a job with a video game company, electronic arts. They have a big presence in Vancouver, big, big presence. Um, and so I joined there with the intent that I'd move back to the States as much as I was somewhat reluctant to do that. I mean, just loved living, uh, in the Vancouver area. So, I left and I've regretted that move ever since. I mean, that, that lifestyle suited me, but as fate would have it, the opportunity of a lifetime ultimately came my way about two years from starting at EA. I get approached by LinkedIn to be their first head of HR and in Silicon Valley. I mean, that's your dream. You want to work for a, a startup that has a potential to go IPO. I had no idea this was going to be an explosion of a career opportunity for me. Um, you know, there was no there was no guarantees when you join a startup that anything's going to happen. And I thought, well, I can always go back to those big companies and do the EAs and the Cisco's of the future if this doesn't work out. But I would always regret um, not trying. And I had this – my mom uh, ha had said something about, you know, some people in our family, you know, had this uncle. And she says, God, he really could have been someone, you know. And I always had this thing in my mom's like, I don't ever want to – have anyone say to me, well, he could have, he could have yeah. done something. He could have done something with self. So I said, I'm going to take a leap 
And my mom, everyone's like, what are you doing? You've got this big job at EA, the number two HR person playing video games guilt-free. Why would you give that up? And, and, um, I saw an opportunity to not only do HR at LinkedIn, but to be a product advisor and to help close deals because they're selling to HR people. So it was like a dream job in every way. Um, the only problem was that I'd never been in a startup. I didn't know how to build a company from nothing. And it was a terrifying, stressful four years of my life. <laughs> well, and that's it's interesting because kind of as you walked through a couple of the jobs, you, you kind of mentioned that you had some people that that you, when you said, Hey, I, I don't know, they were like, Oh, you got this. And, and you heard that a couple of times in your career and, and lo and behold, you had it, it was there. You just needed to kind of dig around and figure it out. So did that make the decision to kind of throw away or to walk away, pardon me, from an opportunity like EA for something at LinkedIn? Did you kind of have that in you now you didn't need somebody to tell you that you had this, you believed in it, or was it still, when you're hearing that feedback from family and friends, is it still something that you look in the mirror and say, what am I doing here today, Steve? Is this really what I want to do? Yeah, that's a great question, Gord. I mean, where were you? I needed your advice back then, sort of like, hey, you've done this before. You can you can do it. <laughs> I felt very excited to have an opportunity, and it's very rare that any of us get this in our lifetimes, and, and I don't um, you know, I don't take it for granted even to this day. It's very rare we get a chance to have a place where we can apply all the learnings we've had, all the mistakes we've made, lessons we've learned, things we've seen broken in other companies, and try to build a company the, quote, the right way. And what I learned during my interview process was everyone on the leadership team, for the most part, was what I call big company refugees, okay? okay. Ex-Google, yep. ex-Yahoo, ex-Adobe, Ex Cisco and so forth. And everyone's like, yeah, we can do it better than the bad experiences we've had. And sadly, most of us in our lifetime learn more about how not to lead than how to lead by bad examples that we've seen in our career. <laughs> so and everyone's yeah. like, well, not me. I mean, I've been a great leader for my people. Well, you know, the truth is uh, today companies are moving so fast. They don't have the time to invest uh, and they should take the time to invest in making leaders better because that's how you unlock greatness and talent. But anyway, so I took that saying, I'm going to have a chance to do this. I didn't, so I wasn't nervous about taking that opportunity. I was never more excited about a job in my life than I was doing that. It just took about two weeks for me to realize I was doing something I'd never done before. Build something out of nothing. My whole career in big companies, I was tuning what other people did before me. I was right. trying to make the process yeah. flow better, modernize it, make it more realistic for today. And someone had built it two, three, five, ten years before me. I'd never done something out of soft clay and said, how are we going to shape this the right way? And oh, here's yeah. the Op thing. Optimize is so much different than materialize. That's right. And, you know, there's a lot of studies about this uh, for, for the listeners to, to benefit from. There's like a the Growth Institute or I can't remember the name of it, but there have been a lot of studies around. We all – over time, really fit a certain evolutionary phase of an organization, whatever that is. Some people thrive in hypergrowth. Some people thrive because it's, I like the chaos and like bringing order out of chaos. Some people thrive in turnaround, like companies going down, hey, we make some different decisions. We can change this thing. That's a bigger challenge, like turning a tanker around. Some people yeah. like stability, like I do not like risk. I just want steady Eddie, mail it in, Chevy truck, like it's going to start when I turn the key, you know, and we all you know, have different things that we can bring in different phases of organizations, you know, uh, growth or, or destiny, whatever that is. And I didn't know that about myself. I was always like big company guy, but I sort of always was very cynical. And I think I built a career reputation of being a policy breaker, not a policy maker. And I met more people in HR I didn't like than people I did. So I was like, oh, and I'm going to do this my way. So the chance to do that was exciting. And then two weeks in, I realized, wait, you guys don't know how to measure performance here. Wait, you don't have an org chart. You don't have levels figured out. We don't know. Are we going to have three VP levels? Are we going to have not like, whoa, I've never even architected those conversations. So I had to quickly start, you know, calling a friend and saying, I need some help from people. Right. And we worked it out. But the, the challenge was I was working with a bunch of alphas who were all, you know, high, you know, high achievers, perfectionists, and uh, the, here's the thing about human resources, which has been sort of a an opportunity, but a big frustration of mine my whole career is most people know what they don't want from HR, 
and they don't know what they do want. <laughs> so yeah. I'm like, so what kind of, you know, what kind of org system do you want? They go, we don't know, but I'm not sure, but we don't want that. You know, we don't want uh, Yahoo's 30 levels from CEO to frontline employee. Okay, what do you want for performance management? Do you want to do performance reviews, not performance reviews, ratings, not ratings, stack ranking, performance appraisals, you know, quarterly, yearly, biannually? What do you want to do? Like, I don't know, but we don't want with the way we did it at Google, you know, like six decimal places. And so that was hard. So it was a lot of negotiation. It was a lot of tapping skills that I hadn't needed before to that extent to build something. And also try to herd cattle where these, you know, very, very strong personalities had very strong points of view and trying to whittle that down. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. I I worked for 13 years at a a major oil and gas company here in Calgary. Um, And it was my first interaction with that as an adult. I'd I'd worked in the field and done some other things, some, some contract work and stuff. And you know, HR, it's it's very apparent in those companies that HR is there as an employee of the company, right? Like they're, you know, when you're in a situation, they're not always there on your behalf. So it's interesting to hear the HR people think of it in a similar manner, right? Like you're, you're, you're those people weren't necessarily your allies or, or helping you in those conversations. And, and you're having to navigate that. Meanwhile, there's like the whole other face of your business where you're managing the human resource, right? The most important part of the whole business, right? So it's, it's, it's just interesting to hear it from the other side of the fence uh, a little bit. Because yeah. It's a really weird think, profession, you know, yeah. it's, HR is just really bizarre. There's no accreditation. There's no certification. There are some, it's highly relationship based, yeah. you know, how well you get, you get along and you are employed by the organization. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I do a lot of coaching of HR people and I say, you know, the first thing that you're going to need to figure out is what is your philosophy? Because there is no right philosophy of HR. I think there are better ones. Uh, and it's a very uh, broad skill set from, you know, everything from sourcing and recruiting and onboarding to training and development and learning and coaching and dispute resolution, labor laws, benefits, compensation, immigration, relocation. You know, there's a lot there. And so not everyone's good at all those things. And there's highly analytical and there's highly, you know, interpersonal. So, you know, you want the job that plays to your strengths. But what I, what I sort of came to um, over the course of my career is I'm here to help the company win. Okay. And that means taking unpopular positions. And the reason why HR is an easy target is you could come to me, Gordon, and say, hey, I'd like to promote Bill. He's my star employee, you know, been here five years. And I go, well, uh, Gord. Susan and Jennifer has been, have been here seven years, and according to your last performance reviews, they're performing better. So how's that going to look if you promote Bill instead of the two women? And by the way, I've got an, an obligation to manage this culture, and that decision is high risk for you, and it's not just your decision. It's my culture too. So I'm sorry, but I'd like you to revisit that and come back and, and tell me you know, why yeah. the guy and not the two women. And by the way, you're opening a hornet's nest. You know, and those both those women have come to me and said, how come I'm not getting promoted? So, you know, so that doesn't make you the popular guy in the lunchroom uh, when I'm blocking you from doing something you want because I have to have a conscience for the greater good of the organization. Now, the, the challenge with HR is that it is a desk where many decisions that shape the culture take place. Who's hired? Who's promoted? Who gets salary increase? Who, you know, who gets a certain bonus plan? Blah, blah, blah. Those are very powerful decisions. We also drive investigations. Hey, Gord, I'd like to really work with you on your development plan this year to get you to be a senior executive. Oh, by the way, someone's filed a complaint against you for sexual harassment. I'm going to be investigating you. And you're like, what? You know, yeah. that, doesn't, that doesn't make me the friend. It makes me sort of like the foe. But I've, it's a weird compliance yet constructive package, right? And so well, it's and people it- that have gravitas that, that can float in those places and it's a profession of trust, basically. Trust and judgment is the currency you're dealing with. And that's that's what I was going to say, is you really have to um, appreciate the fact that this person is doing a job and and the T word, trust, that that they're able to compartmentalize. Gord, let's let's have a look at the the complaint. And if there's an issue there, then then you know what? We're going to have to shut, you know, table this other thing that we've been talking about or somebody else is going to have to take that on. And, you know, it's it's a the culture be very important because sometimes 
if you haven't seen it work out like that, you're going to be very suspicious. But if you, by and large, feel that the culture is is fair and just around your 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 organization, you know, maybe I don't know, maybe it, it just helps a little bit with yeah. that too. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like professional sports in a way. And again, like I said, I'm I'm a real sports junkie, but when we're a fan and we're watching the players play and the coach coach, we see one dimension of that 15 dimensions of what's really happening. We're not in the locker room. We're not behind the scenes. We don't know what's going on in the personal lives of players. We're just seeing, Hey, you're like dogging it out there. You know, we don't know that they've got a sore ankle or they're on medication or that their wife just broke up with it. We don't know, yeah. you know? So when you're a, a manager or an employee and you go, no, HR, you guys don't know what your heck you're doing. It's like, well, you have no idea what the CEO told me, what the board of directors told me, what, what our plans are, that we would be doing something different. So you got a lot of information and you can't always share all that stuff. You know, it's weird. You know, some of the best things I've done in my career, I could never go through the hallways and say, I kept the CEO from making a bad decision. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't celebrate that. Um, but the greatest joy for me is helping someone untangle a problem they're really frustrated with. Like this is the area that over time in our craft, we always, we hopefully learn what we're really good at. And I'm really good at helping people navigate and untangle something really that they feel stuck in. Like I, I can't get this person to perform or I don't have a good relationship with my boss or this team sucks, you know, and trying to say, okay, well let's reframe because I saw this or I have to tell someone that they're really not making it. How do I do that? I'm like, okay, well, I can give you a 50 options. Let's role play, right? So that's what I like to do um, to try to help people because it's inevitable. We're a bunch of humans, man. When we get in large groups, weird stuff starts happening, you know, politics, yeah. all kinds of stuff. And we're human. And so I try to, you know, everyone, we just got to give everyone grace. Like I'm dealing with all these companies now, like, tell us what the answer is, Steve. Should we all go hybrid back to the office or work from home? And I go, I can't tell you that because I'm not in your business, but I can tell you this. You need to experiment. You need to figure it out. There's no – it's not a clean what is the best practice because we are in the world of experimenting right now. We don't know, you know. And, well, uh, and that, that's actually a comment. Uh, I've, I, so I've been listening to uh, your your podcast, The Work Week After Hours, you and uh, yeah. Shane. And mm -hmm. a couple of times you've revisited that, that theory or, or that comment that – you know, if, if you're not talking to your people and understanding where they're at, whether it's their wife left them or their childcare situations changed through the pandemic and they need the flexibility to work from home. Like if we're, it's just so different now than, than however many years ago where it was just work happens at a desk, your desk is located at this physical address yeah. and this yeah. is how it has to be. And, and I, it's interesting to hear, you know, uh, somebody who's, who's that high up the food chain um, is hearing that and understands that. And it's just, you know, how long is it, that message going to find its equilibrium where, where the people understand it, believe it, and, and it's working yeah. for people. I don't know, but. Yeah, Gord, I think this is the great opportunity that we have right now. And, and, you know, I was joking to this lady, I was going to the post office to mail some of my books to some influencers yesterday. And this lady was pulling this newspaper out of this machine. I go, what are you doing that for? She says, what do you mean? I go, that's just a bunch of bad news. What do you want that for? Like, <laughs> and she, she laughed, but there is so much gloom and doom out there that we need to give hope. And here's the hope that I have that we're, what we're going through right now, exactly along the lines of what you're saying, which is, yeah, we need to check in with people more, but I sincerely hope that what, what the way that we look at what just happened is that home and work just merged. It was a hostile takeover by the pandemic. They just merged. So if I'm working with you, if you got something going on in your life, like, kids aren't focused on school, the internet's down, your parents are ill. My mom, you know, we have fires here in California. It's going to be a bad fire season this year. But last year, my mom calls, hey, I might have to evacuate. Like she doesn't walk very well. She can't even pack her car. Right. Like, and if everyone's running for the hills, my mom's going to get trampled like, you know, uh, someone who's late to the Who concert, you know? So like, I got to figure, I got to figure out a new set of challenges in my life that I didn't have to figure out before. But here's the opportunity. We need to check in with our staff coworkers more than ever before. And I hope that that bond is going to serve us well, that we appreciate the fullness of a human being and, a, and not just a coworker. You know what I'm saying? Like everyone's full circumstances are more revealed. Like I see in your house right now, you're seeing my basement, you know, and, and 
I never saw that with my coworkers before. And maybe someone elderly walks by like, what's that? Or you got some kind of weird pet in the background or what's that noise? Like I'm learning. We're learning more about one another. And I hope, I sincerely hope that when we return that it's not, Hey, what are the numbers? What are your results? Hey, give me the year to date. What's the quarterly, you know? And, and, and it's more like, Hey, how are you doing? You know? And, and leaders, you know, as you, if you heard on the podcast, cause we talk about it a lot, I mean, that's got to be the first thing we all we all check in. Like, are you good? You know, and my family, we started a whole new rhythm. We have every it was every Monday night we would have one hour call. I mean, we haven't talked to each other that much ever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Probably even when we were living together. But now we're all dispersed. I have a, a sister and two brothers, a mom, a dad, and a stepmother. Uh, and you know, we're just checking in and what's going on. And then we've now reverted to every other week. Um just to kind of check in, but it's just a great new rhythm. We have a deeper connection as a family, you know, and I hope that what we are discovering now is better ways of taking that work relationship and finding it to be a little more meaningful because we're just spending too many hours for that to be one dimensional work only thing, you know? Oh, totally. So, so what, what about your career at this point, Steve, made you decide that you were going to pull back the curtain a little bit and start sharing this knowledge uh, you know, and, and really letting people see what goes into it and, and maybe, you know, humanizing the human resource portion of these companies. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. When I stopped, uh, so 20, 2012, end of 2012, I decided to leave LinkedIn and I had no plan. Like I literally walked, this is how I resigned. I walk into the CEO's office and he goes, you don't look so good. I go, yeah, I'm not feeling so good. He goes, well, I can't have someone in your job not feeling good. And I go, you're right. I should probably leave. He goes, well, that wasn't where I thought this conversation was going to go. <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. And I'd had a few months of, you know, going to the office and not enjoying it. And things were, I wasn't, my job had evolved into something that wasn't firing me up as much anymore. And the company had done so well that I had some financial independence to sort of say, have the great fortune of being able to do what I want to do. And so I'm like, yeah, I think I'm going to take a breather and let me know how you want to do this. He's like, Ooh, okay. So literally that was how it went. I had not gone to work that day saying I'm leaving nothing. And so, um, so I land and for the next six months, I just talked to hundreds of friends that I'd lost touch with in my busy, self-important, isolated yeah. world. All these people I used to work with that I loved that I just lost touch with, like, Coffee after coffee after coffee. And I, you get, when you're on your own, you get to know which coffee shops have the good, clean bathrooms. And that was a big, important factor for me yeah. when you're independent. So I just started. And then what started happening, Court, is I started to notice when I would come alive. Like what kind of person or idea or situation started to light me up. And people started saying, hey, will you share with us? some of your lessons of hyper growth at LinkedIn? Will you share with us how you built one of the most amazing cultures in tech? Will you share with us how you scaled a company without you know people not killing each other? Um, and so I really started to groove and I started enjoying that. And then I started to be invited to speak at these conferences. I'm like, okay, you're going to pay me for this? Like right. I do this for free, but if you're going to write a check, like, okay, that's cool. And so then you're like, all of a sudden you're, you're going to Lisbon, Lisbon and Madrid and these beautiful resorts in Mexico. And, and next thing you're in like Italy and going all over the world and like, wow. And, and people are going, Hey, those are really interesting ideas. And like, so it just started to grow on me and say, I like teaching. I like giving back. And I had a mentor at the time. He's passed away since, uh, Gustavo Rabin and Gustavo, you know, I was probably like a year or two out. I'm like, man, what should I do? And everyone, this is what happens when you leave a 30-year, basically a 30-year corporate run. Your family, your spouse, your parents, everyone you know is like, so when are you going to get back in the game? Like, and people would say, when are you going to get off the beach? Like, they couldn't process me just doing something independently, right. right? And I'm just like, I'm like, I'm never doing that again. Like, what? And I got, I mean, Gord, after my run, I got offers from like big companies, big jobs. I'm like, mm -mm, I'm not doing that again. I want to do something different. I don't know why. Like, I can't really explain why other than I was probably so fried from never turning off for four years at LinkedIn. I was like, I can't do that. And I've had a lot of parental guilt of, yeah. you know, in the deficit there. And my marriage ultimately ended, um, which is super heartbreaking for me as a, as a father. Having my parents divorced, I swore I'd never do that to my kids. So that was like, oh. Uh, so that was hard. Um, and so 
I sort of talked to my mentor, Gustavo, I'm like, what should I do? And he, he's Argentinian. He's like, has that beautiful, like way of making everything sound so amazing. And his sort of Spanish English accent like, Steve, you know, what, you know, what you need to discover is when you feel alive. And I go, well, what does that mean? He goes, well, what do you feel when you're teaching? I said, my hair stands up on my arms. I get goosebumps. He goes, that is the essence of life. You need to do that. So I'm like, okay, I'm doubling down. And he, and that's still, I mean, I still get goosebumps remembering that moment. And he, he was one of those mentors that I had, coaches that he knew I knew the answer, just like you kind of said earlier. And he's just there to sort of guide me to find it. And he was kind of had that Yoda smile on his face, like, I know what you need. <laughs> and so he really helped me. Uh, cause we all, no matter where you are in life, I think you want to make a difference for me. My kids are still young at the time. I wanted to make them proud, you know, and they're not going to remember dad was the LinkedIn guy. And I didn't want to live the rest of my life being, Hey, were you the guy that used to be the guy? And that's sort of like one of the reasons why I decided to write a book is like, I got something to offer. I'm not done. We're living longer. I still feel like I'm 40, you know, and on the backside of my fifties right now. And I wanted to to get out there and sort of say, yeah, and the more time I spent coaching people about their careers and their frustrations and their, uh, you know, disappointments with corporate bad behavior, I'm like, you know what? I have a responsibility for my track record to sort of punch some of this bad corporate behavior in the face and try to give people hope. And so that all those things kind of contributed, Gore, to sort of like, how did I get here? So that's, that's where I'm at. And people, as long as people still go, Hey, yeah, that was good. You know? And so I was just right before we got on today, I finished the, a very huge organization, not, you know, I'm, I can't say who it is. Um, but if you drink hot cocoa and you know, this company's based in Switzerland, you could probably piece it together like their whole Latin American leadership team. Okay. And so they're like, so what do you, I said, what are you guys worried about right now? Like retention. Okay, you're worried about keeping people. Okay, um, why do you think people are leaving? You know, and I said, let me explain to you what just happened. I said, everyone's life just changed. Everyone sees the world differently. You know, and you saw the you were talking about one of the podcasts that Shane and I did recently. Everyone's life just changed. Imagine you're a restaurant worker. Well, I'm not getting the tips I used to get, and it's not really fun because I have this mask and I can't really engage with the customers, so I'm missing that too. I'm not getting paid as much. There's fewer table turnover. My wife's a dental hygienist. She's got to wear like a hazmat suit, and she has this air purifier in the background, so she can't really hear her senior parent, patients tell her, oh, that hurts. And she's like, oh, you know. So her job just changed. Restaurant workers just changed. Hotel, retail, um, you know, restaurants can't hire people because all these people took that year where they didn't have a job and said, oh, I'm going to figure something else out. Or in some cases in the States, people got a, like a stimulus check or unemployment. Like, hey, that's pretty good money. Maybe I don't need to work. So – Everyone's math just changed. I, you know, maybe I'd like spending time. I, I love personally, I love cooking more meals for my kids. Love it. Love sitting down with the kids more. Love the fact that I went from taxi dad every weekend. I'm spent, I'm driving my kids to like 13 events to nothing. I like this calm, this like, let's have a conversation, put the phone down. Yeah. Everyone's math just changed. And we are going to see like a massive perspective shift. And so I'm talking to these people from this company. And I'm like, and that's a good thing. Like, it's great that we hit pause in some respects. And I don't welcome the pandemic, and I'm not happy it's here. But let's look at the upside. We've got a chance to revisit our circumstances and everything about it. And as we come out of this, nothing's going to be the same. Everything's going to be different. And I, and I really predict, and i got to write an article about this because I feel very strongly about this. In the next three years, we're going to see more people changing jobs than at any time in history. Any time. Well, that, that, that was a that was a question I had for you, and you kind of alluded to it a bunch of times there. Um, like workplaces are evolving so fast, and the pandemic kind of provided this opportunity. But it's only gonna work if if people like if the companies, you know, we've we've highlighted the gaps now. Are they gonna are they gonna fill those gaps, or are they gonna steadfastly? forge ahead and say, you know, we'll just offer them more money and they'll stay, which, you know, we know is is suspect at best. It might work in the short term. Or are they going to take the step back that you and Shane talk about a lot on your podcast? And we've touched on a few times here in our discussion that those, you know, those those companies that really understand 
why people are leaving and what they're going to be expecting coming back out of the pandemic. Are those are those the companies that are going to be the ones benefiting from this massive change of of career that that you think is coming? Well, here's some statistics for for the listeners, which I think are pretty cool. And then I'll answer your question. On LinkedIn right now, there are 300,000 open positions for recruiters. That is a leading indicator that the foot is going to be on the gas for companies hiring. That's a yeah. good thing. Yep. Now, I think they're a little gun shy because we still have a fog and we can't see the distance as much as we'd like to see. So why do I want to hire people when the future is still a little uncertain? But there's a lot of hope, right? So Biden hasn't screwed it all up like all the Trump people thought he would. The economy's still rolling down here. Um, and, you know, the pandemic, <clears throat> every country's got their their different challenges getting the vaccination penetration. And, and, and so there's some interesting signs. But when there's more choice, there's more forcing functions for leaders to raise their game. And because people can vote. Mm -hmm. And if I have more choice and I'm not happy with your backwards approach to, you know, everyone's got to go back in the office. I don't care that you have all these things at home. Well, okay, well, I got choice now, so I'm going to vote with my feet. And I, I think I lean in the direct, of course, some leaders are going to go back to their old bad habits. You know, that's just human nature. But I think we're going to see more out of force of necessity, out of forcing because people have choice, have to appreciate we need to frame the work experience a little bit differently, more flexibility, more opportunity to you know, have define your own work hours. You know, we've now proven that all the most of the naysayers around work from home is is just a failed state. We've proven those people wrong. World didn't collapse. We're we're moving right. on. Yeah. Now, it could just be a band aid, and everyone's sort of giving the, everyone else the benefit of the doubt. But I know several HR peers and big companies who had several managers who are like, if I can't see you working, you're not working. Turn the corner and go. Oh my God. I got to learn a new way of leading and they figured it out and they're happier. They were taught that I have to be watching and know everyone out of sight, you know, means not performing. And now they realize not true. So that epiphany I think is, is a, a goodness injection uh, in my hopefulness for what leadership can be. But I also feel, you know, going back to more of a macro thing, uh, Gord is that, in in the in the universe that I live in here in Silicon Valley, leadership is just not something people invest in because they're trying to survive. If I don't get my company up and running quickly, someone's going to steal my idea and checkmate me. You know, so I got to move quickly to hire and have my exit and have my you know financial windfall in eight to ten years. And if I don't do that, someone else is going to do it. So I'm not building for a hundred years. I'm not going to invest in leaders and making them better. I'm going to get good enough. Okay. And I think what people are going to deal with now is because everyone's emotions are high, their tolerance of crap is low, that I think we're going to see employees say, mm -mm, no, I'm not dealing with that crap anymore. Yeah. So yeah. I think – and then the more choice you have, the more you're, you're willing to, to do that, right? And so, I mean, think about like you know, pe people in marriages. You may, you may have friends that have, have gone through divorce. When someone's in another relationship, they start a new relationship – before they've gotten divorced, they're out right. because they got something to go to. And when people have choice, the choice is easier. They're more likely to make it. And plus the grass is always greener and that new company, because you don't know the warts yet, you know? Yeah. So, but it is, it's a, it's probably the most fascinating phenomenon. I think of our lifetime is going to be what's going to happen in the next three years. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but we're going to see massive changes because of so many life changes because leadership's been exposed. Like this is the greatest leadership test of our lifetimes, right? That we're seeing, you know, who's standing up and who who's a good, you know, country leader, who's not, yeah. which, com which company's taking advantage of the pandemic to reap profits versus let's repurpose our factory for free respirators like we saw some companies do and give it away without any, you know, compensation. So it's just interesting. Yeah, no, it's all, and it's, it's, all such a unique point of view depending on like somebody like yourself who's who comes out at that view you know i was a, a mid-level management type person for a bunch of years a, an operations superintendent project manager and and the the work the way i viewed it you know it was very i was self-sufficient on my own i had management and, and stuff that was monitoring my work but i typically 
ran my own kind of projects anyways and, and I just had KPIs that I had to hit and and then we started working from home and and I didn't have that ever that need to be at my desk because that's where work happened because I had field operations working and work happened people saw it I didn't feel it but then I started working from home and it was like wait a second how do I convey this you know and and it's just an interesting I, I agree with you um, the the leadership that is going to kind of pull us out of the next 18 months is the one that's going to win and take us going forward. It's just, we have to understand what the next 18 months is in my, that's the way I think of it when I think about the next three years, right? It's, it's right. The kind right. of the guys or the people who win the next 18 months, that's what's going to win going forward. And I hope it's the right ones. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and here's what I would say to listeners you know, if you're sitting in a situation and you're not so sure about how your leaders handled the pandemic is like no leader signed up to lead people remotely unless they unless that was a deal before. So right. everyone needs to be given a certain amount of grace. It's not what people signed up for. They need to be given a chance to learn and get smarter and try to optimize. And so I would measure my leader. Are they have they adjusted? Have they pivoted? Have they learned from the beginning of the pandemic to now? to find a better rhythm for me, for the company, for themselves as a leader. And I would measure them like that. Like, not did they just nail it right, because very few leaders did, um, and they should be given some grace. And it's hard, like leading a diver diverse group of people is hard. But you touched on probably the the other big concern I have, Gord, which is for those of us who've never worked from home, what you do at first is you got to say, well, how my boss going to know I'm doing my stuff? Like, I got to work more. I got to send more summary reports, updates, you know, woo-woo, I'm doing my stuff so that I'm demonstrating. And that that leads to the death spiral of burnout, right? And so, you know, I don't know that we found our equilibrium on that just yet uh, for the people. I've been doing this for eight years. I just haven't been the short order cook for my kids for those eight years. So now I've, ha I've had to adjust to that. Yeah. But I, I do think that the, um, you know, we're all we're all adjusting. Right. And and that's why, you know, I thought the Canadian government said it great when the pandemic came out. They're like, hey, we're not working from home. We're at home trying to do work during a crisis. And that's why yeah. these companies say we're all going back. We're all going to stay at home. I go, why? You don't even know if people want that. You don't know that you can create value and innovate remotely, you know, and that your customers want it. So why are you saying we're only going to do it this way from now on? It's a nice statement to your people that you care about them, but that might not be best for your business, you know? Well, and it, it may not make sense because the loudest person in the room says, I want to work from home. It doesn't work for everybody. And, and we're finding that now that we've kind of, this has gone on long enough that the novelty has gone and people yeah. are willing to say, this is what works best for my life. And it yep. might be some hybrid version or, or however. Um, yeah. So talk a little bit. Uh, we're, we're, you know, I've, I've used up a, a big chunk of your time and I, I sure appreciate it. I'll give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about your pod, your your book, and then maybe if you can give me an idea of what does success look like for Steve today? Not going forward, not what was it when I was at LinkedIn. Today, Steve Cadigan, what is success? Okay, sure. Uh, so the first part of your question I'll answer, and then I'll get to the the, the, the fun part. Um, so right now, I have just launched the podcast. We're like seven episodes in. I'm launching two more. So Shane is a good friend. He's become a good friend and he's helping me get my training wheels on for my podcast and hopefully I can go take them off. And I'm going to do something very similar to you. So we're, we're going to be crossing paths in the future. I've got a, a series that I'm going to launch soon called So What Do You Do? And I want to talk to people who've just had very messy, by traditional terms, career paths and to give hope to people of untraditional means through you know people discovering new talents and skills through volunteering through family crises through all kinds of different things um and so i'm excited about that i'm excited about uh, my book being out and telling the world about it. it's just giving me that book is hopefully an opener someone calls it a like a two pound business card that i can do to open doors for to let me to teach more right that that's what i want to do you don't make money selling a book these days and that's fine it's mostly digital anyway that the downloads so i'm excited to um to, to get to meet more people and to share some of those ideas. So, so r right now success to me is, um, I got remarried, uh, three years ago. Congratulations. Um, and thank you so much. And, uh, my wife has bringing two daughters. I've only raised boys. Apparently God said, you're only going to have boys. So I've got two daughters and I'm adjusting to two teenage girls. 
um, which has been a whole learning experience in, in and of itself. It's been awesome. Yeah. Uh, so I've got five kids now in my universe. To me, being a great husband, a great dad, I've got my my oldest is going to be uh, heading off to college in a year, and we haven't been able to visit a camp- campus. So honestly, to me, top priority is helping him make an informed choice there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and then the 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 rest, you know, that so that's number one to me. You know, the family, husband, son, and I've had to be more of a brother. I have a, a disabled brother that my mom has traditionally cared for. And she is uh, less capable of doing that now. She was in lockdown in her elder care facility for a while. So, you know, I was keeping an eye on my, and my brother's been just fabulously good about adjusting. So he lives close by. So, you know, all that stuff is, is trying to find the juggle with that. And um, to me, I'm just going to measure it with, the, you know, waking up like I do, you know, several times a week now, which is very inspiring. And seeing an email from someone like, hey, I saw your TikTok or I saw your YouTube. And I just got to say, really help me think about something differently. And I really appreciate that. Or thank you for humanizing some, you know, toxic environment that I was in and help me understand and look at it from a different perspective. So, you know, my biggest frustration today is when organizations and even us as individuals, when we face a problem, we think that the solution is technical. I need a new tool, need a new phone, need a new system. need a... And we don't stop and pause and say, what, you know, Technology is here to make our human experience better, you know, to make it more beautiful, for to allow us to connect with other people better. Is it doing that or is technology giving us more reasons to hide, isolate, be alone and not really connect? And so I feel like it's kind of my purpose to try to get out there and say, come on, man, technology is there. But it, if it's not serving its purpose, don't seek that as the first knee jerk when something's not working. Oh, it must be a new system, you know. Um, like email, like who invented that? Like that is just the biggest nightmare still. Like is oh. anyone on top of their email? No. So like, why are we doing that? You know, no, so I'm, nobody's figured out how to get on top <laughs> of it either. That's the thing. It's like a part of everyone's life and nobody knows what they're doing with it. Right. Right. But I, uh, so, so, so that's, you know, sort of like the, the big, so what, you know, how I, how I'm defining success right now is feeling, uh, feeling that. And, uh, one of the, one of the, there's so many great parts about my, my wife. Um, but she helped me rediscover my faith. Um, my dad's a minister and I kind of wandered and I feel really more grounded as a person. Um, and feel very fortunate to have, um, to have that, uh, have her as like the angel in my life right now. So, so yeah, I'm not going anywhere. Um, you know, I appreciate, uh, you having me on the show and more so what you're doing. You know, and and I want anything I can do to help you build good followers and what you're doing is super important. You know, the second act. I mean, I hope you have podcasts, the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh act, because, you know, everyone's going through the I am whom I am, like 3.0, 4.0. And that's good. You know, it's making us richer, I think, as humans. I need to reiterate just how absurd it is that Steve actually accepted my invitation to appear on this very new podcast. When I reached out to him. He got back to me almost immediately and was so accommodating when we tried to schedule something. As you heard, Steve definitely operates on a different plane than the Second Act podcast, but he remembers when he didn't, and he was so gracious with his time to help us with our mission. Check him out on TikTok, YouTube, or at his website, www.stevecadigan.com. Steve's honesty in been there, done that, but more interested in you, Ethos, is so refreshing from a person who has his experience and pedigree. You've heard all of the companies he's worked for. It would be really easy for him to be dismissive of anyone who isn't in that sphere. But instead, he uses that to relate to folks and pass along information to help them through the gauntlet that is corporate life. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Second Act Podcast. Find us on Instagram at the Second Act Pod or the Second Act Podcast at gmail.com where we're always looking to interact and we appreciate any feedback. I have to admit that as this podcast has become more and more active and takes up more and more of my time, I am highly aware of the toll that this takes on my mental health. I find myself staying up working, waking up thinking about who I'm working with, and what steps I'm taking next. Again, I'd like to thank Steve Cadigan for joining us today. It's just so incredible when somebody with Steve's depth and breadth of knowledge is willing to sit down and talk to us at the Second Act podcast about the things that 
we have questions about what goes on behind the curtain. It's incredible to hear some of those stories to understand that those are just people that don't know always what they're doing. The, the impression that they always understand it exactly goes away. As always, remember that there's no wrong answers and there's no test at the end. So make the most of each day. The Second Act Podcast would like to thank Ben Sound for the intro and outro music. Happy Rock. That is www.bensound.com. We'd also like to thank Chin Whiskers for the promotional consideration. You can find them at your local Tommy Guns, Original Barbershop, Amazon, or chinwhiskers.ca. And we would also like to thank you for listening.